All right, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to focus our attention on a whole section of texts, but we will be focusing on trying to understand how it all works centered on Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 to 31. Matthew 24, 21 to 31. And if you are ready, able, willing, and inclined, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect." See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Eschatology, which is the fancy theological word for the study of the end times. Eschatology is the Bible's teaching on the last things. And eschatology can seem like a daunting subject for us to tackle, right? An overly complicated knot, far too difficult for any of us to untangle, better left to the professionals and the theologians who have a lot of seminary training. But let me just tell you this, it is not that way at all. In fact, I want you to consider something with me for a minute. When Jesus spoke these words in Matthew chapter 24, who exactly was he teaching them to? The 12 disciples. And what do we know about the 12 disciples? Scripture tells us that they were uneducated, common men. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, for example, we read that when they, they being the rulers and the elders and the scribes at the temple in Jerusalem, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. 
See, Jesus didn't describe the events of the last days or the last things to these tremendous theological minds who had spent decades in seminary. No, he taught them to this group of 12 simple, common men. So let me encourage you by saying you do not need to get caught up in the trap of thinking this is all just too difficult for us to understand. We don't need to content ourselves with fuzzy and confused thoughts about the end times. As I've heard people say sometimes, you know what? I'm a pan-millennial. I believe it'll all pan out in the end. It's not too difficult to understand, and you can understand it. You can comprehend the general contours of the end times by simply reading the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 in their most natural and straightforward sense. Because the overall timeline that Jesus gives in this chapter is actually quite easy to follow. Verses 4 to 14, the times leading up to the end of the age. Verses 14, 15 to 28, the great tribulational period. Verses 29 to 31, Jesus returns. There it is. If anyone wants to fill in the blanks a little further, you can get more specific by wading into the deeper waters of the prophets and the book of Revelation. But again, if you're looking at the quick overview of what Jesus tells us here, again, let me say it again. Verses 4 to 14 describe the characteristics that will define the age leading up to the end, the age that we are currently living in. 14 to 28, 15 to 28 describes the time of great tribulation that will come upon the earth before the end, just before the end comes. Verses 29 to 31 chronicles the return of the Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory immediately after the tribulation of those days. You see that in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Pretty simple, right? Let me just say it again. 4 to, four, four to 15. Signs characterizing the times leading up to the end. 15 to 28. The events of the tribulation and great tribulation. The time of distress that will come upon the world when the Lord vents his fury against the wickedness and sinfulness of the world's inhabitants who refuse to repent, either Jew or Gentile. Verses 29 to 31, immediately after that great tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and glory to gather his elect from the four winds. Three times. So while there are many details that are fleshed out elsewhere in Scripture, which we will look at this morning, that's the basic eschatological outline. You are now educated in eschatology. Good job, folks. Times get worse leading up to the end of the age. Tribulation kicks off. After the tribulation, Jesus returns. Now let's fill it all in a little bit. As we've already noted in previous messages, there will be certain characteristics that define the times leading up to the end. So just take a look back at verses 4 to 14 again. These are the days we find ourselves in. The days of pseudo-Christs and false prophets who work the global stage trying to lead as many people as possible away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Who right now, Jesus, who Jesus right now holds out to all people the offer of salvation by grace through faith in his son, or through faith in his name. 
These liars have plied their idolatrous craft throughout the last 2,000 years by A, claiming to be prophets, B, claiming to hear new revelation from God, and C, establishing religions that do not center on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as he is revealed in Scripture, as he is held out to us in Scripture, is, according to Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The one in whom, Colossians 1.19 tells us, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So you see, any and all religious systems, all of the so-called great religions of the world are the product of satanic influence, the product of false prophets and pseudo-Christs And their reason, the entire reason for their existence is to aid the demonic realm in its goals of stealing and killing and ultimately destroying human souls. This is why when you go back to the Old Testament and you read about the Lord's dealings with the idolatrous religions around Israel, he never played nice with them. Our Lord does not play nice with so-called gods and religious idolatries that damn souls. These are an affront to our God. And along with this proliferation of deceivers, this age will also witness numerous wars, hear a great number of rumors of wars, and will watch as nation rises against nation and kingdom rises against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes throughout the world as creation itself, cursed as it is because of human human sinfulness, Remember, remember back in Genesis chapter 3 when the Lord told Adam in chapter 3 verse 7, cursed is the ground because of you. Creation finds itself at this moment in bondage to corruption, subject to futility, and awaiting the day when all of the sons and all of the daughters of God are finally revealed. Even more, these days will be characterized by a global hatred against those who bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ those who are his ambassadors, those who live to make the appeal to lost sinners in this rebellious world to be reconciled to the Lord. Repent of your sin, turn to Jesus in faith. You, believer, will be hated. And let me just say this, there isn't much you can do about that. The darkness is always hated when the light shines and exposes its evil. And for this reason... Many will be hated, many will be delivered up to affliction and distress, and many will even be put to death because they love Jesus Christ. And they refuse to give in to the world's wickedness. They refuse to celebrate the world's debauchery. They refuse to renounce faith in the name of Christ which makes you and I, if you truly love Jesus here this morning, you and I are a consistent thorn in the sides of a people bent on their own destruction, bent on their own darkness, bent on their own damnation. And during these days, the love of many will grow cold as people no longer help one another, but instead begin betraying each other. And Jesus said, for those Christians living in these days, for you and I living in these days, We are to do three things. A, or first, remain alert. 
See that in 24, verse 4. See to it that no one leads you astray. And if you go to chapter 24, verse 42, you'll also see Jesus say, so stay awake. A call Jesus makes numerous times throughout these chapters. Be awake, be aware, be on guard, be alert. And we must take this seriously because for all of our current culture's talk about being woke, a word that grates on my eyeballs... Every time I hear it, our generation is less alert, sleepier, and more unprepared for the return of our Lord than any generation before it. And if the times of tribulation were to fall upon this generation, how many would be prepared for it? So the call of our Savior is to be awake, be alert, but also, second, to endure to persevere, to hold fast, to cling to Christ, no matter what happens to you in this age. And third, to continue proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to everyone indiscriminately, going into all the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that the Lord has commanded. But there will come a time, however, when this concludes, when this age that is characterized by verses 4 to 14 ends and the tribulation period begins as we read in verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, or as the apostle Paul put it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. If you see this in your days, said Jesus, if this time comes and you find yourself on earth while it's happening, flee to the mountains and run to the hills. Because, verse 21, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. This great tribulation, this three and a half year period that was revealed to the prophet Daniel and shown to the apostle John in Revelation chapters 6 to 16, will be unlike anything the world has ever experienced as the Lord pours out his just right and good wrath and judgment upon the unrepentant world. And during those days of tribulation, there will be many, all praise to the Lord, a great multitude that no man can count from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every language who will turn to the Lord, be saved by the Lord, and killed for that faith. These days will be so devastating, so intense, as the seven seals of Revelation 6 are opened and the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride forth to take peace from the earth, bringing famine and pestilence and death with them. And as the seven trumpets of Revelation 8 and 9 are blown and even greater global catastrophes come upon the earth, a third of the earth is burned up, mountains are thrown into the sea, turning a third of the waters into blood, the water turns bitter, the sky is darkened, the demonic realm is unleashed and allowed to torment those without the seal of God on their foreheads. 
And as the seven bowls of God's wrath, as recorded in Revelation 16, are poured out, killing everything in the sea, turning all the waters into blood, as it was in the days of the Egyptian plagues, scorching the inhabitants of the earth with fire, these days will be like nothing you have ever seen. And Jesus tells us that if those days had not been cut short, had God not limited those days to the three and a half year period that he has ordained, no human being would survive. But for the sake of his elect, for the sake of his chosen people, those that he has predestined to salvation, to the praise of his glorious grace, the great tribulation period will be limited to this three and a half year period. This is where we left off last week. And as we continue, starting at verse 23, we see that even in these days of tribulation, the false Christs and the false prophets do not quit their labors. They continue working to turn the peoples of the earth away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reason, Jesus continued in verse 23. Look at it. These are during the times of tribulation. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. The point of this section in verses 23 to 28 is simply this. As the activity of deceivers in the world intensifies, even if they perform great signs and wonders, if anyone has to tell you that Christ has returned, if anyone has to call you to come and see Christ that they claim returned, don't believe it. Because the return of Christ will not be anything secret. Don't believe it because his return will be witnessed by everyone on the earth. There will be absolutely no mistaking the return of our Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven with, great pow- with power and great glory. You, if you are here on earth, you will not miss it. So if anyone tells you he's returned spiritually or he's returned secretly or he's returned in any sort of other non-visible, localized or hidden way, for example, if they say to you like in verse 26, look, he's in the wilderness, meaning he's out in the desolate, uninhabited places and if you want to be on his team, come out to the desert with us to see him because he's specifically just coming to work with us. If someone says something like this, Jesus said in verse 26, do not go out. Because no one will have to go looking for Jesus. At his return, he will be visible to all the tribes of the earth. Jesus will not return in some hidden manner, revealing his arrival only to a select few in the wilderness or in some other private location, like we read again in 26. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms. Again, speaking to some hidden location, if you've got the King James, they use the phrase, in the secret chambers, which does a good job illustrating the point. If anyone beckons you during the days of the tribulation to come and see a supposed Messiah who contents himself with hiding in secret chambers or out in the wilderness, Jesus said in verse 26, do not believe it. Do not accept the claim as true or credible. Don't even dignify the claim by either considering it or going out to look for yourself. You see that, right? Do not go out. Do not believe it. Again, people will not have to search for the returning Christ 
People will not have to hear secondhand that he has returned. No, his arrival will be visible to all nations, all kingdoms, all peoples of the earth. But this is not going to stop false Christs and false prophets from rising up, as Jesus makes clear in verse 24. There will be, during this great tribulation, before the return of Christ on the clouds, deliberate deceivers who actually pretend to be the Lord. There will be false prophets who pretend to be real prophets whose sole aim is to direct your attention to false Christs. And these false Christs and these false prophets will be extremely convincing, says the Lord. In that Jesus said it next in verse 24. They will perform great signs and wonders. You see that? They will perform great signs and wonders. So let's just make something clear here, right? Miracles and signs in and of themselves do not ensure anyone that a person who claims to speak for and represent God is actually from God. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So for those remaining on earth during the days of the tribulation, there will be false Christs, false prophets who perform great signs and wonders, who will display and perform remarkable supernatural miracles that will astound everyone who sees them. The book of Revelation actually describes the arrival of two beasts, one of which is the Antichrist who is given power, the power of the great dragon, as Revelation 12, 9 will say. The great dragon is identified as Satan himself. And to this beast was given power to perform great signs and wonders. We read this in Revelation chapter 13, verse 13 to 15. Listen to this. It, the Antichrist, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. So you remember just the... Remember when Elijah did that, and everybody believed. Now the prophetic miracles are aped by the demonic realm to get you to believe their claims. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast, in violation of the command, that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Listen to this part was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets continually mocked the idols of the nation for what reason? They did not speak. They could not speak because they were simply blocks of wood without any ability to speak or act. But during the tribulation, Satan is allowed to give breath to the image so that it does what has never been done before. It speaks. And it is so convincing that if it were possible to lead even the elect away, they would be led away. And again, false Christs and false prophets are identified in Revelation 16, 14 as 
demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The Apostle Paul describes it like this. You want to get a good uh, understanding of the end of the last things, read 2 Thessalonians. Great book. He describes it like this in the, in the sec- book of 2 Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. So these miracle-working imposters are going to be so convincing that they will lead many astray. They will be so convincing that if it were possible for God's elect to be plucked from his hand, if it were possible for one of God's elect to depart from the faith or to walk away from the faith, they would. In order to pledge allegiance to the false Christs and the false prophets. But they will not be led astray. They cannot depart because they are sealed by the Lord. Revelation 14, verses 4 to 5, speaking about the 144,000, speaking about those who are sealed by God and have the name of the Father written on their foreheads, describes them like this. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And they, as God's elect, will remain blameless because nothing can, nothing will extract God's elect from his powerful hand. And what is it that these false Christs and false prophets are drawing people to by their great signs and wonders? Revelation 16, 16 tells us, they, that is the false ones who perform the great signs, assemble them, meaning those who are deceived by their works, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon. And why do they all, why do all the deceived gather themselves to make war against the Lamb? Why do these deceived go to Armageddon? They do so, according to Revelation 17, 14, to make war against the Lamb. But here's the end result. According to Revelation 17, 14, the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. But they keep going against the Lord. Why? Revelation 17, 17 says it. God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. In other words, this is the Lord's plan. This is how he has decreed and organized everything. He will carry out his ultimate purpose of saving Jew and saving Gentile and dispensing his wrath and judgment upon the rebellious. Again, the Apostle Paul in the second letter to Thessalonians describes it quite well, saying this, For those who refuse at this time to love the truth and be saved, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
So that Christ's return, Christ will return in a most public way, and that false prophets and false Christs will arise to lead a multitude astray is news that Jesus tells us in advance for the benefit of those who may live through these times, as he said in verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. I have warned you ahead of time what will take place. This is a mercy for you and I who may think we're saved but actually aren't. When these false Christs and prophets with miracle working power rise up, you who are alive in those days, remember this, verse 27, look at it. As lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Meaning, Christ's return will be so sudden, so visible, so universally obvious that no one will need to point him out. It will be like a bolt of lightning that brightens up the entire sky. You've ever been out in one of those? The whole sky is lit up by that bolt of lightning. Everybody sees it. Its illumination is noticed and witnessed by all. But in the meantime, during this great tribulation, before the visible return of Christ on the clouds, Jesus said in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a rather vivid and disturbing picture, isn't it? One that describes the stinking mass of humanity of corrupt humanity in its rebellion against the Lord during the Great Tribulation. The corpse that is humanity apart from the life and the vitality of Jesus Christ in the heart and the soul will be descended upon, will be swarmed by and pecked at by false prophets and false Christs portrayed here as vultures who never miss an opportunity to devour the decaying flesh of dead and rotting spirits to fill their own bellies at the expense of the spiritually dead. These vultures will, spiritually and physically, gather around the corpse, and they will lead spiritually dead humanity in battle against the Lord Jesus Christ to the final, the actual final battle fought on earth, which coincides with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven immediately after the tribulation. As we read in verse 29 immediately after the tribulation of those days. Meaning, there's the time marker. Immediately after the tribulation. So Jesus here is making a clear and definitive point as to the order of events leading up to his return. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, but during this whole discourse, Jesus has repeatedly made the distinction between these things which refers to the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, and those days. These things, those days. Which looks ahead to some farther out, larger cataclysm during the final days. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, look at verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Meaning, there will be some sort of large-scale cosmic upheaval accompanying the return of Christ. As Jesus, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, withdraws to some degree and shakes the powers of the heavens as the normal, predictable patterns of the world and the cosmos are disturbed and the celestial bodies teeter and totter and fall from the sky, the picture is one of total chaos preceding the opening of the skies. And this is something that is repeatedly spoken about in the Old Testament prophets. 
It's a prophetic description of the time as we read, for example, in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And again, in Ezekiel, even more graphically, in chapter 32, verses 4 to 8, we read the Lord saying this, I will cast you to the ground. On the open field I will fling you and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood. And the ravines will be full of you when I blot you out. I will cover the heavens, make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Sounds pleasant. But know this, for those who turn to Jesus in faith during these days, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ will be a day of rejoicing. But for those who remain in rebellion against the Lord, this will be a terrible and awful day, because after these cosmic disturbances, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. So you remember the disciples' question way back in verse 3? The question that has launched this whole discourse? question was, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Jesus actually reveals to them the sign of his coming. Verse 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power or with power and great glory. All the kingdoms, the nations, the tribes, the people groups, all of them will mourn That word means a demonstrable beating of the chest in anguish as they see the judge, Jesus Christ, coming on the clouds with power and great glory. They see a power even greater than that of the miracle-working Antichrist that they had all given themselves to following. And with great glory, meaning exceptional splendor and radiance and honor, unlike anything the world has ever seen. They will mourn because they rejected him. They refused him. They cursed him. They rebelled against him. Even as he provided them warning after warning, trumpet after trumpet, bowl after bowl, seal after seal during the days of tribulation, and still the peoples of the earth would not repent. And they even went so far as to continue in their obstinance, still believing that maybe... Perhaps they can throw off his rule as they gather themselves even after his return to make war against him. So for this reason, along with the, all that Christ will do at his return, the tribes will mourn when he arrives. And so what is it that the Lord is going to do upon his return? What will he do that brings about the mourning and the grief of all the tribes of the earth? First, as we see in our text... He will gather up his elect. You see that in verse 31? Second, we'll look outside of the text for this one. He will make war against Antichrist and the kings of the earth. He will conquer and kill them. 
And third, he will establish his millennial kingdom, his thousand-year earthly reign from, a, from his throne in Jerusalem. So let's look at all three of these in order. First, verse 31, Jesus will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the return of Christ in power unlike, is unlike his first coming. In his first coming, his deity was veiled from sight. His earthly life was marked by meekness, mildness, seeking and saving the lost, by voluntarily laying his life down so that sinners who turn to him can be forgiven, saved, and declared righteous, that they could be given the gift of eternal life. But this time, when Jesus returns, when he arrives in power, this marks the time of terrible judgment upon the wicked in the world. In fact, Revelation 19 says, when he arrives this time, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. As wrath falls and the, the elect are gathered to him from all parts of the world, the phrase four winds is kind of like us saying from the four corners of the earth, from all over, from everywhere in the earth. The elector gathered first, and then Jesus second makes war against and slays the Antichrist and his forces of evil. These details are filled out for us in Revelation 19. If you want to flip over to Revelation 19, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. Revelation 19 and into 20. John describes in Revelation the return of Christ in this way, in starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, do you hear what's said there? The Lord Jesus Christ's judging and making war, as described in the rest of this chapter, are done in righteousness. Meaning, these are what Jesus is about to do is a righteous act carried out by the one who is himself faithful and true. Many seem to forget this particular picture and aspect of Christ when he returns. John continues, verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, meaning crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. In fulfillment of Psalm 2, one of my favorite psalms. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, meaning vultures. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs... <clears throat> 
by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. There is coming a time that truly and literally where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. In the very end, in the end, the very vultures and false prophets and false Christs who surrounded the corpse of humanity and those who rebelled against the Lord and fought against him on the side of Antichrist are themselves slain by the Lord coming on his white horse and they are gorged by the birds who swoop down to consume their flesh. This is one of those common themes you, read, you hear about in sermons these days. So first... Christ gathers up his elect from the four corners of the earth. Then in righteousness, he arrives on a white horse to make war against the beast and the armies of earth gathered against him. Upon these rebels, Christ will tread the winepress of God's fury. And then when these are out of the way, third, Christ will establish his millennial kingdom on earth. This is described in Revelation 20. As John wrote, look at Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. This is the same bottomless pit that is spoken of back in Revelation chapter 9 when the fifth angel blew his trumpet. The pit was opened and the demons held inside were released to torment the people on the earth. But now that the millennial kingdom is about to be established, we read this in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 20. The angel seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into a pit, shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now there are some who would like us to think that we are in this millennial kingdom right now and that instead of ruling from his throne in Jerusalem, Jesus is ruling from his throne in heaven. And they'll even go so far as to say things like, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan was bound at the cross. And so he cannot at this time deceive the nations. These teach that this, what you see right now all across the world, what we are living in, in this moment, with the wars and rumors of wars and false Christs and all of that, this is the glorious millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, simply put, completely violates the plain meaning of God's word and doesn't take seriously the numerous texts that speak, for example, to Satan's activity in our world at this very moment. In a few minutes, I'm going to read what the Old Testament says about the Millennial Kingdom, and then you can make your decision as to whether the world today matches up with that or not. But is Satan bound? Was he bound at the cross? Well, the Apostle Peter wrote, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in the very next verse, he tells believers in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, to resist him. Why would we have to resist someone who is bound? Paul again said in Ephesians, he warned the Ephesians about the prince of the power of the air, Satan, who is now, there's the word now, at work in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. And again, in the same letter, he exhorts the Ephesians in 4.27 not to give opportunity to the devil. And he reminds them again of the need that we have to put on the whole armor of God that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, over or against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. And notice what Paul called the times in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. He called them this present darkness. Do you see that? This present darkness, which if Paul meant this millennium, is a really odd way of saying it. In the New Testament, Christians are warned to recognize in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians 2, 11, he writes to the Corinthian believers to be on guard that they are not outwitted by Satan. And Paul wrote to the Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan in Romans 16, 20. And there are many more instances of this fact that Satan is active. He is not bound, and so we must be on guard as believers against his schemes and his designs as all these texts are written in the present tense. Revelation 20 also tells us that when Satan is bound, he will deceive the nations no longer. When I look out at the world and I consider the nations, I don't know about you, but they all seem quite deceived to me under the power and sway of demonic influence. Nations that brutalize their people, nations who slaughter Christians, nations who promote sickening, wicked, debauched agendas. How can they not be deceived? What other explanation could there be? No, the future earthly millennial reign of Jesus Christ is the only reasonable interpretation of God's word when we read it in its natural and straightforward manner. And while the Bible itself is the clincher here, the witness of the early church fathers confirms it, also attesting this to be the case as Justin Martyr, the first church apologist back in the year 130, wrote this, I and others who are right-minded Christians at all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. Revelation 20 and its description of the millennial kingdom continues in verses uh, 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it is during this time, this millennial reign, when all of the outstanding promises that still exist for Israel will be fulfilled. This is when God will, as Daniel wrote in Daniel 9.24, seal up both vision and prophet, meaning make good on every prophetic word he's declared, then roll up the scroll of prophecy because it's no longer needed, and after that we enter into the eternal kingdom. And so what, is the Lord, the, the Old Testament, what do the Old Testament prophets tell us about the millennial kingdom of our Lord? It is during this time, writes the prophets, when Israel will be gathered and restored to Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ will rule as Lord, as foretold in Isaiah chapter 9, for example, where we read of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This millennial kingdom will be a kingdom of peace, as we read in Isaiah chapter 32, verses 17 and 18. The effect of righteousness will be peace, 
and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwelling places, and in quiet resting places. This millennial kingdom will be characterized by holiness, as Isaiah says in chapter 35, verse 8. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. One of the great passages describing the time of Messiah's millennial reign is found in Isaiah 11. Listen to these words. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On top of that, the promise is that the Lord, the land will produce abundantly as the curse of Genesis is reversed and sickness is absent, as Isaiah says in 33:24, when he said, no inhabitant will say, I'm sick. Everyone will be blessed with abnormally long life, as Isaiah said in chapter 65, verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old. And there will be peace throughout the entire earth, meaning no war. As we read in Isaiah 2, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. These are some of the characteristics and realities of the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ when he puts down all opposition and leads the world in a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity unlike anything the world has ever seen. Contrast what we just read with the world you live in. And yet, even after this thousand years ends, after all the prophecies have been fulfilled, after the inhabitants of the earth have witnessed firsthand the glories of living under Christ for a thousand years, they still rebel against him. Now, some might think during the tribulation, well, yeah, of course people are going to get mad because all these wrath and all these plagues and all this tribulation, they don't lead people to repentance. It didn't move the needle of repentance because those are all acts of recompense and punishment. What people need is good, patient, graceful, or gracious, compassion, and then they, under the experience of God's rule and reign, and then they'll see. But the human heart is so utterly wicked that even that doesn't lead everyone to repentance. Look at Revelation 20, verses 7 to 9. When the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. You see that? After a thousand years of utopian existence, the nations are so quickly and easily deceived, again, to the point that they march against Christ and his saints, but this time, there is no war, there is no battle. All the battles and all the wars are done. They've been fought. Look what happens in verse 9 and 10. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. All I can say to that is, finally, I so eagerly await that day, and I hope you do too, when Satan and all of his hosts are thrown into the, the lake of fire to be tormented day and night, when you and I don't have to deal any longer with his attempts to destroy us, with his attempts to lead us into sin and disobedience. 
And then after this comes great white throne judgment when all the dead are raised. Those whose names are written in the book of life are brought into the eternal kingdom while those whose names are not written in the book of life who hadn't turned to Jesus in faith, they are thrown into the lake of fire along with the devil and his angels to be tormented with him day and night forever. Why is it important to know eschatology? Because it provides us who love Christ both the impetus to go out and proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the lost, knowing what is about to come, And it also gives us confidence that things won't always be what they are. There is coming a day when Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire never to deceive you and I again. There is coming a day when we who trust Jesus will enter into the eternal kingdom to be with him forever. It inspires confidence to know where it all ends up. And this ought to also inspire us to live holy lives in the present. So in closing, as I said in the beginning, the general contours, I filled in a lot of blanks, but the general contours of the end times are not too difficult to grasp. Hear it again. Times leading up to the end will be characterized by numerous trials and difficulties. Those times will conclude when the gospel has been preached to all people and the Antichrist sets up his abomination of desolation, leading to a seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth. At the conclusion of the tribulation period, the Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds with great glory and power to gather his elect to himself and destroy the nations of the world who've come against him. After Christ destroys those nations, binds Satan for a thousand years, establishes his millennial kingdom, a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity for the world, wherein the This time the promises to Israel are fulfilled. Then Satan is released at the conclusion of the thousand years, goes out, deceives the nations once again to array themselves against the Lord and his people for battle, but there is no battle. Fire from heaven consumes them. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. The dead are raised. We all enter into the great white throne judgment. The wicked whose names are not found in the book of life are share the same judgment as Satan, while those who love Christ are conducted into the eternal kingdom. And there you have it. That's the general outline. It might seem like a complicated web of events, but God has revealed it. You can know it. And if you are saved, you can be comforted by it. And if you are not saved, may you be terrified by everything that will befall you should you continue in your refusal to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you and we thank you for giving us the general outline of what will be occurring in the last days. We thank you that while many have made it really, really, really complicated, you, when you spoke it to your disciples, made it really, really, really simple. So, Father, I pray that all that we've learned about the end times would do a few things, that it would inspire hope and confidence in those who love you and and who trust in your name, that it would inspire terror and fear in those who are in rebellion against you right now. And that it would help us, who do love you in this moment, to be more impassioned and emboldened in our proclamation of the gospel, knowing that it might very well be one of us who proclaims the gospel to the last person of this age that kicks in these times. That would be amazing. Father, we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.